Hi, and welcome to your next great read from the Okie Bookcast. I'm Jay Hall, and I'm on a mission to connect you with your next favorite book, and that's what this show is all about. We're going to be talking about books we love and giving you reasons to love them too. The goal of the conversation is to introduce you to a bunch of great books and hopefully connect you with a few that you can't wait to read. As always, I'm joined by my co-host, who we had to pull away from the Taylor Swift ticket queue, but she's here, uh, author and screenwriter and my favorite oldest daughter, Hannah Heron. Hannah, what's up? You know, I'm glad to be here, especially after going through that great war to get Taylor Swift tickets. But? But I prevailed. (laughs) Tickets in hand. It's very exciting. Tickets in hand on phone. We won. We'll stop there with all that. I'm so excited about this conversation because this is truly a family affair. So not only do we have Hannah, but we have with us tonight retired teacher, bookcast superfan, and my favorite mom, and Hannah's favorite Grammy, Susan Hall. Mom, we're so excited to have you with us. Oh, thank you. I'm excited to be here. I love the bookcast, as you know, so I'm glad to be part. No, we're, we're thrilled to have you here. Um, before we get started, tell us a little bit about your reading life. What do you like to read? How much do you read? Things like that. Okay. Well, I'm, I've always read from an early age. I don't ever remember not having a book going. It, my, I love to read historical fiction. That's probably my first go-to. I also read some romance and some legal thrillers. Um I think the greatest joy of my reading life was 30 years teaching reading to elementary students. Awesome. Yeah. Seeing kids come to life and learn that they can read on their own. It's, it's really rewarding. So children's books and teaching reading were a big part of my reading life. Now I'm retired and I can read all the time. And you do. Yes, I do. (laughs) So I just, I, I need to say that the reason that I am the reader I am is because my mom is the reader that she is. I can never remember a time when mom didn't have a book in her hand, when she was a teacher and doing teachery things all day and then dealing with three boys all night. Uh, every night was still going to bed with a book in her hand, reading before she went to sleep, stacks of books all over the house. So uh, I saw it modeled from an early age and it has stuck. So well done, mom. Well, thank you. I'm glad it stuck. <laughs> Me too. Hannah, give us a quick rundown of kind of the plan before we get started. Yeah. Okay, guys. So just a quick reminder of how this conversation is going to go. We'll talk about books in three different rounds. So for the first round, we're going to talk about a book that we're currently reading. We're going to give you kind of some early impressions about it, um, maybe kind of give you a recommendation based on what we've consumed of it so far. Then for the next round, we're going to talk about two books that we've read in the last 30 days or so. We'll give you kind of a quick review, quick recommendation, and a little synopsis so um, you can kind of decide for yourself if that's maybe something you'd also like to pick up. And then we like to end with what we call our backlist pick. And this is one book from a pre-assigned category, and it has to have been released at least five years ago, so we have to reach back a little bit for it. So we'll do our backlist pick last. All right, guys. So let's go ahead and get it kicked off with round one. Grammy, you're going to go first. Okay. I am reading Her Hidden Genius by Marie Benedict. Marie Benedict is one of my all-time favorite authors. I just began reading her earlier this year. She does historical fiction, and her books are about women in history who made great contributions, but because of 
the time that they lived and the things that were going on, they did not get credit for those. Her hidden genius is about Dr. Rosalind Franklin. She was a scientist. She's British. And she played a major role in the discovery of the structure of DNA. I'm about 90 pages into the book. And she started her career in Paris right after World War II because she had a job opportunity there. And in Paris, she was accepted as a woman scientist. She was part of the team. But because of family pressure and a heartbreak that comes in there, um, she went back to London and went to work at King's College which was very male-dominated. And that's where I'm at in the book right now, is she's at King's College and beginning her research on DNA. And history tells us that she did do the majority of the work on that, but did not receive credit, at least in her lifetime. Marie Benedict brings this woman to life. It's not just her part in history, but you find out personal things about her. Her research is incredible into these characters. So I, I'm loving this book and I highly recommend all her books. You know, it's, it's amazing how many books like that uh, we run across where especially female scientists are really important in some kind of conversation, but we don't, you know, I think about, um, is it hidden figures? Is that, that's the, the book about the rocket, the NASA rocket scientist yeah. that helped him get to the moon. Yeah. But Nobody really knew those stories until the book came out and then the movie. And those those stories are so important. And I'll be talking about one just like it here in a little bit uh, of historical women in times when they really weren't given the opportunity to be noticed. But without them, we wouldn't be where we are. I often talk about how much I love like a strong female protagonist and like female heavy fiction. Um specifically when though you give it that historical context of this is a real person and she was very much underappreciated for what she discovered and what she worked on at the time. And I love that now we can go back and read her story, especially since it's so well researched and and the voice is there and everything um, that really kind of brings her back to life. Right. And kind of brings back to life what she did and, um, gives her that appreciation that was deserved. So I love stuff like that. I'm going to have to check it out. Well, her books, she does such a good job of the history that, you know, what's going on in the world at the time that these women lived and what a role they played. Okay, Jay, what are you reading? I'm reading a book called Heat 2 by Michael Mann and Meg Gardner. Uh, It is the novel sequel to a movie called Heat that came out in 1995. Um, So the movie, very quickly, uh, Al Pacino, Robert De Niro, Val Kilmer, John Voight, uh, Ashley Judd. And it was the first movie where Pacino and De Niro appeared on screen together. So they were together in The Godfather 2. They were both in that movie, but they never were on screen together. Heat is a crime drama about this heist gang that is is planning a big job. Um, and then there's the cop who is on to him and trying to figure out what's going on. And it ends, spoiler alert, but it's a 30-year-old movie, so I can spoil it. Uh, it ends with a massive shootout in downtown LA. It's nuts. 
Um, lots of people don't walk away from it. I won't spoil it that far. So then the book and Michael Mann was the director. So one of the authors of this book was the director of the original heat and was also the screenwriter for it. And Mann always said that he wanted to keep going with the story, but just never really had the opportunity to make the next movie. So he and Meg Gardner wrote the next chapter. Heat 2 picks up immediately after the shootout in LA and everything that goes on there, but it also flashes back. So you get what happens after and a lot of conversation and a lot of the the aftermath and the fallout of the, the bank heist and the shootout and the people that made it and the people that didn't. But you also get a ton of backstory about the different members of the gang, about the police detective who's chasing him around to help understand why they got to this point in time. So everything is kind of driving towards uh, what ultimately happens in L.A. after the the heist in, in 1995. But one of the cool things about Heat is that you have all of these separate stories that are inevitably moving towards each other. And the book is doing the same thing, that they're in different places and everybody's not together yet, but you can see the movement and the momentum coming where there's going to be that ultimate showdown again in the events uh, of the film. Uh, it is a crime drama. It's pretty gritty. It's not for everybody. There's some violence in it. Lots of language, lots of PG 13 kinds of things, uh, but really well paced. Again, Michael Mann is a screenwriter, so he, he thinks cinematically, he writes cinematically. Meg Gardner um, has written a lot of thrillers. And so she kind of has that pacing. So it's, it's well done. It's well written. It's really interesting. You don't have to know the movie to understand what's going on because the first chapter is really kind of a recap of what happens in the movie. I'm about probably halfway through and really, really enjoying it. So Heat 2 by Michael Mann and Meg Gardner. So I have a question for you. You've seen the movie and you're, you're about halfway through the book at this right. point. You say the book can can kind of be standalone. You don't need to see the movie. Would you recommend watching the movie first even still? Yeah. Or, okay. Because I haven't, I haven't consumed either. I haven't seen heat i've heard a lot about it of course and i haven't heard it. i didn't know that there was a book that was kind of a follow-up i also love um books written by movie people like yeah. screenwriters particularly because of the way that they visualize the story it bleeds into the narrative so beautifully and i think most of them don't even realize they're doing it because it's just that's how they craft story um, but it's a very very immersive experience as a reader to read something in that style well, and especially since he was a director, and so not only did he write what they were doing, but he also caused them to do the things that they did. So that vision is even more expanded because he's writing about characters that he moved in certain ways and caused to do certain things. And so even that kind of stuff shows up. So that's why I'd say you don't have to have seen the movie. You're going to get it. It's a great story without it. But it will mean a whole lot more if you know who these people are and kind of what's coming or what's happened in the, uh, in the aftermath part of it. All right, Hannah, what about you? What are you reading? All right. So um, I actually just picked this book up yesterday after work. So I am very, very early into it. Um, but I am reading a book called The Missing by C.L. Taylor. Um, this is my first book of hers that I've read. It, she mostly writes crime, thriller, drama. Um, she's also written a couple like holiday Christmas books as well. Um, that I think might veer more romance. But this is the first one of hers I've picked up, but she's been recommended to me by a couple different people. So it was time. Um, the Missing is about a 
boy that goes missing, which makes sense. Um, and essentially a lot of different people in his family are suspects at the time, right? So um, you have his mom, who I would consider at this point the protagonist. So she's kind of the main voice that you hear from. Um, she is an unreliable narrator, though. We know that from the get-go. We know that from the back cover copy. So we understand that the story that we're hearing from her may or may not be the whole truth, right? I love that. Um, that is an acquired taste, I think. Some people really don't love that. They don't want to feel like they're being lied to. Um, for me, I think it provides the ability for there to be a really fun and exciting twist when it's done well. So I have high hopes. The very first chapter is two pages long, and it's a chat conversation between two different people. We have no idea who they are. We have no context. All we know is this chat conversation takes a really dark turn, and then it's chapter two, and then it's a different perspective. And so it's got that kind of um, anticipation building in it already, which is really exciting. It's what you want from a thriller. It's it's already kind of got that hook in because we've got a little bit of a mystery. I mean, I'm only a few pages into it. So this is a very, very early um, review of what I'm thinking of it, but it's going to be pretty to the point, I think, of the story structure. And um, and I think it's going to tell a really interesting mystery. So I'm excited to kind of see how it unfolds. I would recommend it as of the first 15 pages or so, but um, I will keep you guys posted. I'm excited to read more. Does it keep up with that chat kind of thing all the way through? No, it's So it, it's more prose from that point forward, but it looks like it's going to have chat conversations throughout um, kind of sprinkled in. So I think we're going to get bits and pieces from that as we go. It also looks like there may even be like letters and stuff as well. There's a couple different kind of alternative format chapters. And so I think we're going to be fed little pieces of the puzzle through different mm-hmm. kinds of content throughout the story. And I love when an author kind of mixes it up like that. I think that keeps it fun. Right. And the more that we get used to reading things via social media and other places, it, the more we're seeing that in prose as well. So, you know, Blake Crouch does a ton of that. Yeah, definitely. I'm not usually into thrillers, but that sounds like something I would like. So you'll have to keep me posted. Yeah. And I think that, you know, because Grammy, you like some more like drama and like family stuff sometimes too. And I think that this is going to play on that quite a bit as well. I mean, again, right. I'm I'm early into it. So I'm not quite sure how all the different family members and different perspectives are going to um, come to a head in the in the story. But it's it's definitely kind of leaning in that kind of drama direction as well. All right, guys. So shifting gears, let's go to our next round of books. Dad, tell us about your two books from the last 30 days. Okay. Quick warning slash disclaimer. This is about to get very bookcast promo-y because all of the authors I'm about to talk about, I have talked to on the bookcast, some of them very recently. So uh, just be warned. First book is Prize for the Fire by Rilla Askew. I actually just released my conversation with Rilla Last week is at the time we're recording this uh, in November. She's in chapter 30 because Prize for the Fire just came out. Prize for the Fire is um, historical fiction. Mom, so there you go. It is about a woman named Anne Askew who lived in the 1600s, or I'm sorry, in the 16th century in Tudor England, Henry VIII's England. Um, and she was known as the last martyr of Henry VIII. So she was burned at the stake as a heretic. Spoiler alert, but it's history, so that's not really a spoiler. Under Henry VIII and was one of the last people that he he put to death before he died. We know that about her and we know a little bit about her adult life, but most of the fiction comes in 
where Rilla kind of reconstructs what her early life was like. So the the book is about her from her not beginnings, but the, it, it opens with her as a child bride. Her sister died before an arranged marriage took place. And so her father gave Anne in her sister's place to this guy that her sister was supposed to marry. So at 15, Anne gets married uh, to a guy who is not a great guy. And it tracks through her navigating that, but also then moving into she she finds faith, she finds the Bible, she begins to read it for herself, which was kind of a, a taboo thing to do in, in that time, um, and becomes a really significant Protestant scholar at a time when it was kind of complicated to be a significant Protestant scholar, especially a female Protestant scholar. So, Mom, you're talking earlier about liking you know historical fiction with strong women who also find themselves in difficult situations. And I think this really fits that, that she is powerful, she's strong, but she's in a culture where she's really powerless. She's kind of operating at the whim of the men in her life, her husband and her brothers and some other people, but also the religious and political establishment who change their minds about what's okay in terms of religion kind of on whims, just based on whichever way the wind's blowing. And so she she finds herself caught up in a lot of that. So everything about the book is as historically accurate as it can be. All the characters are actual people who lived uh, as much as we know about what Anne uh, actually did and said and, and how she lived, and how she died is all there. But Rilla does a fantastic job of constructing the rest while also making it feel very real to the time, but also really accessible for us. So the language is very accessible, but at the same time, uh, the idioms and the, the, some of the language that's used is appropriate to 16th century England. So it's a great mix of the two. It's really well written. It's really interesting. It moves very quickly. It, it gives you a real sense, not just of her life, but of the time and the climate and the things that she was dealing with. So go listen to chapter 30, listen to Rilla and I talk about it and then dive in uh, to the book because I think, and mom, I think you would absolutely love it. Oh, I can't wait to read it. I hope you're going to share. After I heard her talk with you on chapter 30, I am ready to get a hold of her books. So the second book then, uh, Hannah, prepare your eye roll. Just cue it up right now because here it comes. Oh boy, here we go. It may not be as bad as the sci-fi eye roll from last time, but I think it's coming. My second pick is honestly one of my favorite discoveries this year uh, as I spent a ton of time reading books by Oklahoma authors. I just got and read issue five of Glamorella's Daughter, which is a comic by uh, two Oklahoma guys. There's the eye roll. It, it, <laughs> you don't have video, but you can you can almost hear her eyes rolling. It's by an artist named Jerry Bennett, by the way, who I talked to in chapter 19 of the book cast back, I think, in May. And then the writer is a guy named Charles J. Martin, who was my very first guest, uh, chapter one in the Literati Press comics and novels uh, episode. The two of them have collaborated on this. Glamorella's Daughter is a fantastic comic. But it's also just a fantastic book. Um, so Glamorella is a superhero. She's from another dimension. But the comic really is about her daughter, hence the name. Her daughter's name is Comet. And Comet is on the autism spectrum. So there's a lot of great superhero-y stuff. But there's also a ton of the, the story revolves around 
comet trying to navigate friendship, trying to navigate family, trying to navigate some of the crazy superhero stuff that goes on as she is also dealing with the challenge of, of being on the autism spectrum. It's it's sensitive. It's smart. It's funny. It's got tons of action. Uh, the art is fantastic. It's set in Oklahoma City. So they do some really cool stuff. Like there's some cool shots where Glamorella is flying around Oklahoma City and you see the Oklahoma City skyline below her. But the other thing that's really cool about it, they have consultants who are helping them stay true to the things they're talking about. So they have a consultant from Autism Oklahoma who is looking at and, and evaluating the the way that they write Comet to make sure that it feels true and that it rings true to, to who she should be. They also have another consultant because they, so Jerry and Charles are both white middle-aged guys, but they're writing children, they're writing women, they're writing lots of characters of color. And so they have consultants who are also making sure that those voices and those actions and even the look of some of these characters is is true to who they would be. So it's it's really done with a lot of heart, with a lot of care, um, but it's also just a ton, a ton of fun. It's for everybody. Kids could read it and enjoy it. Obviously, I am not a child. At uh, 52, I'm reading it and enjoying it. You can pick it up. There's five issues. The, the first four have been combined into a trade publication now, and then uh, issue five is just out. Now, Mom, I made you read this yes. as part of the Read Oklahoma Challenge. Read a, a comic by an Oklahoma artist. So I want, it, I want you to take away Hannah's eye roll and tell everybody what you thought of Glamorella's Daughter. It is wonderful. And I have never been a comic book reader. And I said to Jay when he had that for one of the challenges, that's probably one I will not meet. And he said, oh, yes, you have to read these. I fell in love. I mean, it is so well done. The illustrations are fabulous. I now am the proud owner of a signed copy of the first four that were put into book form. And I cannot wait to read the fifth one. It is really good. And it is totally out of character for me to read a comic book. You told me that you think that's the first comic you've ever read. I think so. I don't ever, even as a child, remember reading comics. Ever. Well, it's time. Never too late. I love this one. And I need number five. I can make that happen for you. All right, Hannah, your turn. What have you been reading? All right. So I'll start with the fun one. They're both fun. I guess I shouldn't say that. I'll start with the more lighthearted one. We'll (laughs) go with that. Um, Okay, so Leanne Moriarty is a pretty big name right now, right? She wrote um, Big Little Lies, which was turned into a series. Um, She wrote Nine Perfect Strangers, which was also turned into a series. I've read both of those books, loved them. And so I grabbed another one from Moriarty. This is called What Alice Forgot. And um, essentially the premise of this story is Alice is 39. She's about to turn 40. And um, she has an accident at a spin class and she hits her head. And she wakes up. Very first chapter of the book is her waking up from this accident. And she thinks she's 29. So she has lost in her memory. She's lost 10 years of her life. She doesn't remember any of it. And we wake up with her on that first page, right? So we don't remember any of it either. 
And, you know, in her mind, she's happily married. She's pregnant with her first child. She has all these wonderful friends. She has a wonderful relationship with her sister. And she wakes up from this accident and she's told that it's 10 years later and none of that is true anymore. She and her husband are splitting up. She has a rocky relationship with her sister. Um, Friendships have deteriorated or circumstances have changed. And in her mind, it was just a split second ago. And so this story is about her kind of relearning what happened during those 10 years um, and in some ways coming to terms with some things and in other ways really trying to turn things back around for the better, right? Trying to mend her relationship with her husband, trying to um, fix things with her sister, even though you know they remember the last 10 years. And so they remember who she's been during that time, even though she doesn't. And you know they keep saying, oh, it's like she's the old Alice again, you know, and she's kind of figuring out what that means. I loved it. It was witty. It was funny. The characters are very charming. And yet it was also heartbreaking and gut-wrenching at times. Um, It was heartwarming. It had some really wonderful, like tender relationship moments. All in all, I mean, it was just kind of a story about life and seasons of life and the way that people grow and change, sometimes for the better, sometimes for the worse, and how we can bounce back from that. I won't tell you how it ends, but um, just really, really, really highly recommend it. And so it's it's interesting to call it a lighthearted read because there are definitely some pretty heavy topics um, and some heavy moments, but overall just very, very fun and um, would highly recommend this one from Moriarty. That sounds a little different than what some of her other books have sounded like. Is that the case? Yeah, it is. Um, especially, you know, the, especially the two that I mentioned, Big Little Lies and um, Nine Perfect Strangers. They were more in like the thriller, um, mm-hmm. drama s kind of. And this this does have drama, but it's it's more on the lighthearted side. And it it has kind of more of that hopeful atmosphere than some of her other stories do. Like The Husband's Secret, I've read that one as well. That's also more thriller. This almost airs a little bit more towards like sitcom, if you will. You know, like that's oh. kind of the the vibe almost. But then we still have those kind of like deep emotional moments as well. So Moriarty is still in there for sure. Um, but it is, it's a different kind of story than she usually tells. And I, I thought she did a really good job with it. So what's your second one? All right. So switching gears quite a bit. The second book that I read this past month is called Dark Places by Jillian Flynn. Um, she wrote Gone Girl. So that kind of gives you a vibe probably right off the bat if you've read Gone Girl or seen the film, fantastic film. Um, So Dark Places is about a woman named Libby Day. She's in her 30s. And when Libby was seven years old, her two sisters and her mother were murdered by her brother, Ben. So that's where we're going with this one. Um, Libby is now in her 30s. She has spent the majority of her life living off of the funds and the donations that people have given to her because of the tragedy that she went through. And, you know, it was like every five years, the news would run an anniversary thing on her and she'd get more donations. And so she's never held a job. She's never even really done much with her life in general. And when our story begins, she is sitting down with her lawyer and she finds out that she's out of money. And so 
either something new needs to happen with the case or she needs to start making more appearances again or she has to go get a job. Well, Libby's not really into the idea of having a job, as you probably (laughs) wouldn't be if you were in your 30s and you'd never had one before. So she is approached by the leader of what they call the Kill Club. And this is basically a club that has become obsessed with different like true crime scenarios and stuff. And of course, her family story is one that they have obsessed over. And so they actually hire her at first just to come speak to their club. And she's, you know, she's paid. That hook is kind of put in and then they go, okay, well, actually, we want to know if your brother really did it. That's kind of, you know, the debate is, did Ben really murder his two sisters and mom? And then why did he leave Libby alive? You know, that's kind of the question. And so they actually hire Libby to kind of reinvestigate the things that she saw that day, kind of retalk to some of the people who could have been involved. It So it kind of takes you a little bit all over the country, which is fun. You kind of get to travel along with Libby as she talks to different people and like revisit certain things from that phase of her life. She even spends some time in Oklahoma. So that's kind of fun. It's very, very dark, which you can probably imagine from that premise. I... I honestly can't name a time where I've actually like closed a book and said like, okay, this went too far. I can't take it anymore. I was almost there at one point with this book. So it's really not for the faint of heart. Um, But if you can stomach it, it is fantastically written. It's really, really well done. It's not super long, so you don't have to stomach it for too long. Um, (laughs) But I... Jillian Flynn is a fantastic writer, and um, I would I would highly recommend if you enjoy that type of story, then pick this one up. It's it's a good one. Mom, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that that doesn't sound like something you want to read. No, and I read I read Gone Girl, but that sounds way yeah. Too this far. is this no. is much deeper, darker. But there are there's an audience. Yeah, I mean, I think that's exactly right. I think if you're into that level of like crime junkie, like dark, cult, satanic, like that, if if you like that kind of thing, this is your book. And there is definitely that audience, but um, it, it does kind of dive straight into that head first. So be prepared if that's one you want to pick up. But if that's what you're into, um, it w- it's really well done. All right. So, Grammy, tell us about the two books that you've read this month. Okay. Well, the first one is The Boys from Biloxi by John Grisham, his latest book. And it's about two boys who grew up in the 60s in Biloxi, Mississippi. Both were from Croatian immigrant families. They were friends growing up. They were all-star baseball players in Little League together. And at the time, Biloxi was, it was a resort town, but it also had a darker side because it was big into corruption with the Dixie Mafia. They had lots of clubs along the coast with gambling and bootleg liquor and so on. And so the boys grow up and take very different paths. One, Keith Rudy follows his father's footsteps. who worked his way through law school, becomes an attorney there in town, and then decides to run for DA in order to clean up the coast. That's his goal. The other, 
goes the opposite way of his father. Hugh Malco follows his father who was who became the boss of the underworld there in Biloxi. And of course the two families end up in on opposite sides of the courtroom. And the book is to me is very different than most of Gresham's books. Now it still involves courtrooms and attorneys and good guys and bad guys. But it starts out really slow. There's You're a third of the way in before there's really any action. Hmm. He spends the first part of the book um, with lots of background and introduction of characters. And there are a lot of characters to keep up with. You don't really get real involved in the story until about a third of the way through when they finally start the courtroom battles and people start being arrested and then it gets more exciting. There's a lot of Gresham just telling the story and not as much dialogue. I liked it, um, it, but it wasn't, it, it wasn't a favorite like, I love his uh, Jake Brigant's series and, you know, other books that I've read of his. And this one didn't stand out like the others. It's, it's, a, it's a good story, but not what I expected. You know, that's one of the challenges when, when an author like Grisham has a book that he writes. You know, everybody kind of knows this is what a John Grisham book is going to look like and about halfway through, you're going to end up in the courtroom and there's going to be a hero. So for anything that's different for an author like that, you run the risk of people who come in expecting one thing and getting something else, not necessarily being into it in the same way. You know, it's a sign of a good writer to grab you anyway. And it sounds like he did. Um, wasn't necessarily what you expected, but at the same time, you know, he, he writes well. And so it's just, it was just different. What's your other book? The other book I absolutely loved and I can't wait to talk about it. It's called Horse. It's by Geraldine Brooks. She's an author. uh, She's from Australia, actually, but she lives in the United States now. Um, She's also a Pulitzer Prize winner for her novel, March. Horse is based, it's historical fiction, of course. Horse is based on the true story of the record-breaking race horse, Lexington. And this novel is about horse racings in the antebellum South. So we're right before the Civil War when it starts out. And horse racing is a prestige for wealthy white men to own a racehorse. But the story is really about the unacknowledged train black trainers and groomsmen that actually take care of the horses and are responsible for them, but they can get no credit for it. They can't own a horse. Their name is, even if they've trained the horse, their name cannot is not connected with it. And this story is about Henry Lewis, Harry Lewis, who was a trainer and his son, Jarrett, who was um, a slave and was a young boy at the time that Lexington was born. He was there when the cult was born and just immediately became attached to him. And he spends the whole life of the horse with him because when the horse is sold, he as the horse's groomsman is sold with him. Um, 
The narrative goes back and forth in time. You get the story of Lexington and his groom, Jarrett. So you get all of the story about the racing. There's an artist that paints racehorses. He goes from uh, farm to farm and paints these horses. And then it comes into the present with an art historian, a young black man named Theo, who is researching these paintings. And he meets a skeletal expert who works for the Smithsonian. Her name is Jess. And so there's a relationship between the two of them. The book covers art history. It covers things about the Smithsonian. I mean, they fought, they discovered that the, the actual skeleton of this famous racehorse, and I mean, and this is factually true, was stored in the basement of the Smithsonian. So it's a story of slavery. It's a story of the racism in today's world. So it's like Civil War history, race horsing, art, art history, race relations. There is so much to this book. But it's still a story of a young man and his devotion to this horse. It moves smoothly over 170 years, and it, and it does it so seems, seamlessly that you don't have a problem following what's going on. I loved it. Absolutely loved it. I am a sucker for any story with an animal. It can be a dog, it can be a cat, it can be a horse. But particularly, I mean, some of my favorite historical fiction is about racehorses. And so I've got to check this out. And it's it also sounds like it's the kind of book that has a little bit of something for everyone, which I think is really fun. And I think when you can incorporate that in historical fiction, then that's even better, right? Because you're giving historical context to real events and to real people while also being able to appeal to a wide audience so that a lot of us, you know, get a hold of it and get to enjoy it. So I think this sounds like a phenomenal read. It is. It is. All right. So we have uh, made it to the backlist pick. So in honor of our elementary school teacher guest, uh, we're doing this time a favorite children's book, however we choose to define that. So it can be children of, of any age. Um, and remember, it's got to be at least five years old. So, Anna, you get the first word. All right. I'm definitely cheating. Um, but here's the deal. So I was told, you know, a children's book, however you interpret, right? And so I go back into the archives of my brain and I start to think about some of the first books that I remember, right? The first things that come to mind are like true picture books, like the the Very Hungry Caterpillar, right? Where You've got this very colorful caterpillar and these very colorful fruits and vegetables and even hamburgers, I think, at one point. Oh, yeah. And he grows as he eats throughout the book. And and it tells you this story through the pictures, right? Because when you're that age and you're reading the board books, you don't understand. You can't read the words, right? But you understand the story. And so I'm, you know, I'm thinking of how it started with books like that, right? That's where I fell in love with story. And then as I learned how to read, um, Junie B. Jones was one of my first like favorite chapter book characters, right? And there's a million Junie B. Jones books, so I, I couldn't like pick a favorite, but um, that kind of launched me into okay, I'm going to be a, a quote-unquote chapter book reader. But then the book that really kind of solidified my love for stories for me 
um, was Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. It is, it's definitely a children's book. I, I think, I think maybe that's controversial, but, um, it, you know, Harry Potter and those stories, you know, there being seven of them, they kind of grow as he grows up, right? In the very first book, though, he's 11. I was probably not much younger than that when I first read this book. And it was one of the first, like, quote unquote, big chapter books that I had consumed on my own. And so I was very proud of myself for getting my hands on this book and for completing it. And then I looked at the others and I went, oh my gosh, am I really about to read a 700 page book or whatever, you know, the (laughs) Goblet of Fire was and the Deathly Hallows. But I love Harry Potter and I love this first book specifically because it's an underdog story, but it's also the story of friendship and it's a story of community. And it's about this boy who grew up in a situation where he didn't have that, right? He didn't have his parents. He was raised by an aunt and uncle who mistreated him. He had a cousin who mistreated him. He lived under a staircase and he was pulled from that situation by a complete stranger into a world where he's a hero, right? And he didn't even know it. And in this world, he's surrounded by a community that he never knew existed. And he's surrounded by friendships that are bonds for life and that, you know, hold out through the entire series. And I just absolutely fell in love with all of those concepts. And I fell in love with him as a character. I mean, just your heart breaks for him in the beginning. And then you just cheer with him as he triumphs throughout the story. And that's kind of the story of the entire saga, right? I mean, we have really low lows and we have really high highs and we're in it through it all with Harry. I ended up reading all seven of those books within the span of a year. And I was, you know, really young at the time. And only about half the movies had come out, I think, at the time. But just absolutely solidified my love for storytelling. And I I knew after reading Harry Potter that I wanted to be a writer. And so um, I, I have to say, I think I owe a little bit of who I am to those books, which maybe sounds dramatic, but um, it I, I just gush when I talk about Harry Potter and particularly that first story, because that clearly, you know, kind of set the precedent for my love of stories. You know, it's it's easy to forget in hindsight, because now we have the whole collection of stories. And so we've seen films where they are older teenagers and we've, you know, know those books exist that, yeah, that, that first book is about kids and it really, it's written like a children's book. It's very, the language is very simple. Uh, There's lots of dialogue, you know, it's, it's set up for the age child that you were. And then the books just kept progressing as, both the characters progressed, but then also the audience progressed and, and got a little bit older. So yeah, people who go to Sorcerer's Stone originally, like that's the first thing they read as adults. I think there's a lot of people who don't get what's coming because it's, because it is, it's a kid's book. I was teaching fifth grade when Harry Potter came out and the kids that, you know, I can still picture the first little boy that brought it to class, you know, to read in his spare time. And there were several things about that in that um, there were also some parents that wouldn't let their children read it at the time. But, you know, it was such a big chapter book for a 10 or 11 year old to read. And they were pretty proud of themselves if they got through it. So I have fond memories, too, of that first book. So what about you, Mom? What do you got? Okay, I'm going totally different way with favorite book and it it was it's hard to choose but I'm going with a picture book 
And my very favorite picture book is Giraffes Can't Dance by Giles Andrea. And this book came out, it was published in 1999. And the first time I read it, I knew I had to have it for my grandchildren. And at the time, I just had Hannah and her older brother, Caleb, just had two. Um, but I had to buy this book and bring it home to read. It then became one of my favorite read-aloud books with all the grandchildren. And then when I taught pre-K, it was definitely on my reading list for to read with my uh, four-year-olds in the book, of course, the jungle animals are having their annual jungle dance, and Gerald the giraffe just can't dance, and because he's not a good dancer, you know, all the other animals have a special dance, and he has nothing, but he gets out on the dance floor, and then he's made fun of, so he goes away so dejected, and he's walking home, and he he stops to look at the moon, and he meets up with a cricket who has some wise advice. And Gerald learns that all it takes in order to dance is to find music that you love. And there's so much about this book. For one, it's fun to read aloud because it's written in rhyme. And the illustrations are just beautiful. And it leads to such great discussions with children about um, first off about, you know, just being kind and not making fun yeah. of someone and then encouraging children to do what they're good at, you know, look for your strengths and work on those because everybody has strengths and it's okay to be different. And so I think the reason I love it so much is because of the message that it sends, not only for children, but it's a great message for adults as well. I'm sitting here grinning from ear to ear because I can remember story time with Grammy and reading Giraffes Can't Dance. And I remember, you know, I remember that it rhymed and I remember it was, you know, fun. And, but I also remember those conversations, right? Like I, it really did stick with me that pursue your talents and do what you're good at and do what you love, even if it's not what everyone else loves and not what everyone else is good at. And we're all going to have different strengths. And, um, you don't recognize maybe as a little kid, how important that message is going to be until you grow up a little bit more and you remember that story and you recognize that your strengths are different and maybe your strengths are, you know, less popular than someone else's or something. And even as an adult, you know, it's like you may have skill sets that make you better for certain jobs than other. And that's okay. You know, like that is a lesson that carries on in all of the seasons. And so not only is that a fun book with fun pictures with, you know, dancing drafts, but it's also um, got a great message. So I love it. I'm glad you remember us reading it. All right, Jay, what did you choose? I struggled with this. I think we've all three said that, right? Um, My head just kept spinning from Hannah, like you said, from picture books to chapter books to things that I read when I was a little bit older, but still a kid. But my first thought uh, is the one that I came back to because I just love it so much. And it is a massive cheat, which has kind of just become a theme for me on these backlist picks because there are 29 of these books. My choice for the the pick this time is the Encyclopedia Brown Boy Detective series. I loved these books. Encyclopedia Brown is a kid 
um, who likes to solve mysteries. Um, his dad is the police chief. So sometimes he's sitting at the dinner table, helping his dad figure out what happened with like a burglary or something like that. Uh, he also sets up in his garage, his detective agency. And so, uh, he has a sign that says, I'll solve your case, um, for 25 cents, uh, plus expenses. Cause you know, he's a good business guy. It's got a great cast of characters, his friend, Sally, who actually helps solve some of the cases for him because as she tells him, he's a boy and she thinks about things differently. The bully is named Bugs Meanie, which may be the all-time great children's book bad guy name, Bugs Meanie. Uh, he leads the gang called the Tigers. But these books are set up, they're, they're a set of short stories. So every book has three or four stories in it. And they're just little problems that come up, little mysteries that emerge. And then Encyclopedia Brown kind of walks through problem solving and figuring out what happened. But what's really cool about these is there's never like the Scooby-Doo twist, right? So sometimes they pull the mask off the Scooby-Doo bad guy and it's like, where'd that guy even come from? But these books that are written by a guy named Donald J. Sobel, they're written in such a way where the answer is there. So you can solve the case along with Encyclopedia Brown if you're paying attention like he does and if you're thinking about things like he does. And I can remember reading these not just once, but over and over again, even though I knew what was going to happen because the process of getting there was really fun. There's 29 of them. They're middle grade books. So seven to 11 or 12 probably would, would be a good, uh, good realm there. Started writing them actually in the sixties. Uh, the last ones came out, the last one came out in 2012, uh, after he passed away, they finished his last one and, and put them out. But yeah, Encyclopedia Brown by Donald J. Sobel. They're just so much fun. I can attest to the fact that you read Encyclopedia Brown continually and we bought everything, everyone that was available at that time. They were awesome. I, I'm excited. I'd probably go back and read them right now. So there you go, Hannah. I got comic books and I got Encyclopedia Brown. <laughs> Good Christmas idea. What a roller coaster. <laughs> well, all right. I think we've done it. Uh, that's it for this edition of, of Your Next Great Read. Mom, great stuff. No reason to be nervous. You did a fantastic job. Well, thank you. I enjoyed it. And it's fun just to be here with you and Hannah. Thanks for hanging out with us, Hannah. Always great stuff. Always. Uh, remember, you can find links to all the books we talked about, and there were a lot of them, uh, in the show notes and also on okiebookcast.com slash nextread. And while you're there, don't forget to subscribe to the Bookcast newsletter for more news and recommendations coming straight to your inbox every month. Those come out on the first of the month. And then also, you get every episode of the Bookcast, including your next great read, on the day they come out, sent straight to your email. All right, guys. Well, we will be back next month with more books and another great guest. Grammy, I'm going to let you have the last word. Until then, go find something good to read. <laughs>